I'm Dan Suarez of Suarez Family Brewery, and this is the Brewer to Brewer podcast from All About Beer. My guest today is Matthias Trum of Schlenkerla, and he is here for a conversation that goes beyond the brew house and into topics that matter to brewing professionals and curious beer drinkers. First, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media at All About Beer. And to support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash all about beer. We'll get into the conversation in just a moment, but first, this message. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit malteuropemaltingco.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at malteurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. All right, let's get into it. A bit about my guest today. Matthias Trum is the sixth generation owner and brewmaster of Schlankerla. He grew up and still lives today in the historic building that houses the brewery's historic tavern in Bomberg, Germany. He has studied both business and brewing science and majored in the history of brewing. Matthias became responsible for the brewery and the pub in 2003 and has focused on the conversation and the rediscovery of historic brewing and malting styles. He hopes that one day one of his children will continue the long Schlankerla family tradition. Uh, welcome, Matthias. How are and you? And thank, thank you for having me on the show and for uh, inviting me onto this oh, interview. No and, problem. And, and and thank you for the resume. I think we're already done with the contents of the show. Then. <laughs> oh well, actually, the end of that bio is, uh, I think, is probably the per or where I'm most curious. Um, he hopes the one day that his children will continue the long Schlankerla family tradition. Obviously, Schlankerla is a it's a, a throwback kind of brewery, but it's also a brewery with heritage and family heritage. And even the like the beer style of Rauch beer is kind of has a, a, a nice heritage. And I guess I wanted to start today on what does like family brewing mean to you and you know, if you could weave in any like stories from your childhood or stories passed down through the generations um, or old brewing records or anything like that. Yeah. Like what is what is family brewing to you? Um, family brewing is, is uh, well, first of all, a very personal matter, of course. Um, when when you come to the Splankala Tavern uh, and, and the main room, mm -hmm. the so-called Altes Lokal, there's my line of ancestors um on on the wall pictures 
things you normally only know from, you know, when you go to castles and you have these line of kings and barons and so forth. We have that have that with the brewers. So there's my great great grandfather up there, my grandfather and so forth. And then and it gives you a sense of purpose because you're part of something bigger and um you can continue something which has been there for a very long time and you 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 can pass on the flame to the next generation that really is the idea and of course the flame plays an important role in smoke beer uh, but we can talk about that more later on yeah so um it's it gives you i i don't want to make it sound too too big and too large but it it, it gives you some form of closure <laughs> Um, for instance, with all the crises that we're having at the moment and that we're facing and um, also the crises of the past, like uh, when Lehman Brothers collapsed and a lot of breweries or businesses thought, oh, my God, how is that going to end, how I get money and so forth. Um, I always have something from the family history I can look into where I say, hey, what we're facing now is peanuts compared to what they had to face back then. And they found a way. And that gives you um, some reassurance that uh, no matter what, Schlenkler is going to be there and the family business is going to continue. <clears throat> For instance, um, at the end of World War II, uh, obviously my grandfather was drafted to the military and for six years couldn't be in the brewery. So my grandmother was running uh, the business and uh, both customers and brewers were more or less gone because they were, of course, in, in the military and it was extremely dire times. The Nazis basically uh, prevented beer from being brewed the regular way because um, everything became scarce towards the end of the war, like no barley, nothing of that sort. And they were only allowed to brew thin beer with like 2% original gravity, which is mm. nothing really. Yeah. And um, in all that time, the tavern always still uh, stayed open. And um, in, in the last weeks before the war ended, they were serving food against um, food stamps. Yeah. Um, so they were part of the community service. And there was no doubt whatsoever that it's going to continue in some form. And um, this is really a thing which which reassures one and uh it helps you especially in 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 dire times which i think we're having in some form at the moment though it's yeah. all about money at the moment inflation and and yeah. raw material costs it's it's horrible for all the breweries but compared to what they were facing back then yeah it's handleable yeah. yeah so like any any either stories or uh records that um kind of inform like your philosophy or how you do things at Schlankerla today? Like any, can you go into depth of anything like that? Well, I don't know how many of, of the listeners or whether you have ever been to the Schlankerla Tavern, but when, yes. when you enter, when you enter it, it's a little bit like a time <clears throat> travel. Everything looks as it looked centuries ago. You have these big wooden beams on the ceiling or in one, one of the rooms you have an, uh, a gothic arched ceiling which almost looks like a cathedral and in fact it was uh, a church at one point mm. a chapel uh, to yeah. be exact and um, the, the entire uh, complex breathes history and and past and so does the beer smoke beer is a historic beer style which was preserved at Schlenkala and um, so this always played a very important role in, in, in the family history. Um, my grandmother was a very conservative person, my great-grandfather. And 
when when I look into history, what what happened at what point? I think it very often was a deliberate family decision to um, uh, continue the historic way and not uh, engage into new things. Um, for instance, in the 1920s, which was after World War One, uh, the big hyperinflation in Germany. Um, my great grandfather. Um, he got a contract for the local train station to supply them with beer, which was a very happy occasion because you were happy about any beer you could sell. And they took the smoked beer, of course, but they also wanted a lager beer. So um, he actually introduced the lager beer, but um, he kept it smoky in a certain way by fermenting it with a yeast, which was in the smoked beer before. So he even at that extremely uh, difficult situation he did not leave uh, totally the, the the original roots and in fact Michael was the one who kind of stood against the trend um, which was to abolish smoke beers and to go yes. into normal normal brewing so the, the family plays a very very important role in that respect and uh, um, I, I I think in in, in a way, uh, it, it it helps you to see that your ancestors did it that because it gives you um, an orientation, a sense of orientation where you're going to. And I think you need a special type of person who does that because um, normally an entrepreneur uh, wants to, you know, start something new and, and create it from scratch. And in, in the United States, grow, very grow, often grow. it's... Grow, grow, grow. Exactly. Grow, <laughs> grow, grow and sell out one day. And um, I mean, who was that? Uh, um, uh, one American brewer, he never wanted to sell and he sold in the end. And anyways, Koch, was that him? Uh, or... Yeah, yeah, Stone. So that, that, that's the thing. That's the uh, uh, spirit which a lot of entrepreneurs have. And in Schlenkele, that, that never was an issue. For us, it always was about preservation, um, keeping the place <laughs> as it is. Of course, you have certain variances in the size depending on the era you're in. But yeah. there, there's no idea, no, no intention to grow it into a huge business or sell it out for that matter. I mean, we've we've had our offers over time where people were wanting yeah. to take us over, obviously, but that's never been an issue. And and profit maximi maximization has never been an is issue. Yeah. I mean, you said um, early on from my personal bio that I was that I studied business science, so I have all mm -hmm. that background and I have the toolbox to do it that way but i just refuse to do because it's not what schlenkele is about and um um one one example uh 2010 uh in germany or in bavaria for that matter um germany is uh, split up into several federal states similar to the yeah. united states yeah and each state has certain uh freedom to make their own rules. So Bavaria decided in 2010 through a popular vote, actually, that all public buildings, including taverns, are going to be smoke-free. So a uh, total smoking ban there. Yeah. Um, and a lot of taverns were a little bit, well, anxious or uneasy about that because they didn't know how customers would react and how uh, what would happen there. And for me, the thing was, I'm personally not a smoker at all, yeah. so I didn't did not have a personal effect on that. But for me, um, this was a chance to renovate the chapel within the tavern, the Dominicana Klaus, which mm. has this beautiful uh, painting on the ceiling. But 
80 years of cigarette smoke and tar had pretty much covered it. Covered, yeah. Wow. And you, you could only have a, a faint idea of what it originally looked like. So I got in contact with a, a church restoration company who usually does these, you know, gold leaf paintings, Wow. what you do in churches. And they were in there in the room for like, roughly three months so we closed down that one room for three months and they had these really tiny tiny pencils and they washed it off with little squids and and, and uh, with little sponges and they took off all this tar and i have before and after pictures it's just amazing what it looks like wow um not so amazing was the invoice i got after all that yeah. process and i was yeah. like yuck uh that was quite hefty but when when I look at other entrepreneurs <laughs> which enjoy their Porsche or you know whatever kind of uh, money you can spend on stuff, we invested it there. And every day I go in there, and I'm pretty much every day in that room. I look up at yeah. the ceiling, and I'm happy about it again. Yeah. And you know what? If I would have bought a big car back then, that would be pretty much broken by now, 13 years later, and yeah. the ceiling is still there. Yeah. So it's it's a much wow. more long long time investment, which I personally enjoy. And I hope that a few of the customers at least enjoy it there. You know, when they drink and rise, raise their head while drinking and then they can see all the pictures and stuff up there. Yeah. So that that's really what the family is about. And I think my ancestors uh, did it the same way. My father always conveys it to me like that. He's 83 years now. And um, we talk basically every day and um, he always encourages me to keep doing it like that and make everything uh, well, nice and, and historically yeah. correct and invest the money into the business. Even if in the end, the, uh, well, um, the, the profit margin compared to the invested capital is not what it could be if we did it the most professional way, but we have a little, artifact there so that's yeah. that's really the the idea behind it yeah and so uh, i guess uh extrapolating on that like I, was it your great grandfather who like decided to hold on to smoke beer as other uh breweries were modernizing yeah um, michael grazer yeah um so like are there any stories of like was that obviously there's probably difficulties that came along with that and or like trying to figure out how to make money and also preserve the history. Um, and maybe sometimes there was like some benefits to that. Like you could say, like, we are a traditional brewery. Like, are there any stories like that? Well, um, I think you have to start a little bit earlier and look at who Michael okay. was. Michael had uh, 13 siblings. Um, a few of them died at a relatively young age, which was the common thing late 1900. So he yes. was born, um, oh my God, uh, 18, 1868, I think. And um, he actually wanted to become a, um, uh, uh, how to say that, uh, 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 an art historian. And he wanted to go to university and study. So that was his, <laughs> his aim. Um, but when his father died uh, at a relatively long age, he had to take over the company because he was the smart one and uh, <laughs> the oldest one of the family. Okay, yeah. Um, but he brought a lot of his art understanding in into uh, the tavern. So when you go to Schlenkela and you look at how it's refurbished inside, the yeah. historic paintings on the wall, the old chandeliers, that's all Michael's doing. 
Yeah. Um, at a time when the normal Franconian brewer would be somebody in rubber boots running through his uh, uh, brewery and, you know, be in the entangle in the middle of the works. Michael went to Italy to auctions and got old depictions of Bamberg because wow. in, 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 in Germany and Bamberg at the time, it wasn't important. I mean, nowadays, a lot of people collect antiques, but he was yeah. like uh, at least one generation ahead of the rest of them. Wow. And um then World War, World War One came, and he was at the front. So um, it, it stole him six years of what he could have done at Schleinkala. But when the war was over, he immediately took off again. And uh, he actually rented that old chapel, which where I was uh, renovating the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And he renovated it for the first time. He got mm -hmm. the conservator of the National German Museum of Nuremberg to do that. Uh, because before that time, it was used as a military installation. And as you can imagine, they didn't pay much focus on yeah. to beautiful ceilings and stuff no. like that. So um, he brought a lot of uh, his ideas um, in into the Schlenkele and ran it his way. And it paid off in a way that even <clears throat> then there were newspaper articles on this unique tavern and how Michael would run it and... Um, I think he already was a little bit of an icon of the time because uh -huh. he was so different from all the other brewers. Interesting. And uh, the uh, the the decision to um, continue the smoke beer is, of course, the most important one, but it's yeah. just one of the aspects. He continued, for instance, also the historic rock cellars, which we're still using underneath the brewery. Yes. Um, 20s were the time like artificial cooling was invented in 1872 by Carl von Linde, but in the 1920s or so, it became, uh, uh, how to say, uh, available no. everywhere, yeah. normal. Yeah? yeah, All the breweries would close down their rock cellars because it was simply easier to lager the beer next to the brewery rather than to transport it throughout the city and bring it to the rock cellars. Like yeah. when, when you look at Bamberg, the setting is the breweries were spread out all over the city, but yeah. the rock cellars were on the hills. So you would have to transport the beer after um, the brewing process for fermentation and lagering to the rock cellars. And after that, back to the tavern for, for pouring it. Yeah, And of course it made sense to, uh, uh, forego all that effort and do it in, in one location. And Michael said, nah, we're not going to do that. We keep the rock cellar in operation. And he actually made the opposite uh, decision and he moved the brewery to the rock cellars. So the brewery used to be where the tavern is today in the back ah, building. I didn't realize and, that. And and also the malting. So that's yeah. the, wow. um, uh, the, the starting point of Schlenkela dating back to 1405. Um, and Michael moved the brewery up on, on the hill uh, to enable him to keep the rock cellars in operation. So today we are profiting from that. I'm profiting from that because we still have the historic setup with a copper brewer house and, um, and the rock cellars underneath. And of course, we have more space in the tavern, which yeah. brings all kinds of advantages. Yeah. So coming back to your original um, uh, question, I think Michael made a lot of decisions out of um, a sense of beauty, wanting to make things nice looking and 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 historically coherent and yeah. um, art, like full of art, not artificial, yeah. but full of art. Yeah. And it turned out later that these were very good business decisions as well, because mm. we have more capacity these days. We can not produce in a, in a modern style very efficiently, but um, 
if we were just in the brewery, it would be just a brew pub these days. We couldn't supply supermarkets. We couldn't export yeah. to the United States. Yeah. And it would be just, in quotation mark, uh, the tavern. So um, yeah. out of that uh, sense of, 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 of beauty, he made that decision, which had yeah. uh, economic consequence. Wow. Cool. Um, you mentioned the caves. I, I was lucky enough on one of my trips to Bomberg to, uh, get a tour with Andreas, um, at, of the cave and, uh, you know, amazing experience hand dug. You can still see the, the little chisel marks and everything. And I was wondering if, uh, you know, just to hear more about, uh, the history of caves in, in Bavaria or Franconia and the history of your specific cave, like who, who was it built, who built it when, and, you know, just, uh, some comments on, on the caves. Um, they, they actually go back very, very far. I mean, I had a restore a historian research the premises of the brewery location on up on the hill. And the oldest record is, uh, actually from 1387. And wow. already at the time, it was owned by a brewer. Uh, Eberlein Boy was his name. Um, at the time, usually the profession was your last name. And um, it that document from back, back then doesn't say anything about the caves. So it, we can't be 100% sure that the caves actually were there. But in my opinion, why would a brewer own that premise if not for using the caves, uh, the caves for, for lagering the beer? And um, very often when you read... I'm I'm making the big circle now. Yeah. Very often when you read on the history of lager beers, people will write that lager beer only started in the 19th century um, yeah. with the Pilsner beer and yeah. Carlsberg and et cetera, et cetera. Um, in my opinion, that's false. I think um, lager beers have been around for a much longer time. When I did my uh, diploma thesis in, in Weinstefan, I wrote that on a particular aspect of brewing history, the depiction of brewmasters. And uh, a very important and the oldest depiction of a brewmaster is from the city of Nuremberg from 1425. So I was researching in the city archives in Nuremberg, the background of that depiction and so forth. And I found that uh, even back then in the 15th century, this is before Columbus discovered uh, the, the, uh, the Americas, um, Nuremberg had something which they called cold beer, which was served in the summertime. In fact, there was a, a trial between breweries or brewers that owned rock sellers and those who didn't. Um, and those who didn't suit the ones with the rock sellers for serving cold beer in the summertime because it was seen as the higher quality beer. Yes. So um, you, you can be pretty sure that back then lager beer was common. And the, all the old records show that the brewing was different back then here in the area. Um, brewers would brew only in the wintertime, meaning yeah. lager beers when the outside temperature was okay, brought that to the caves and kept it in the caves all the time uh, till summer and continuously served yeah. from there. And only... Uh, towards the end of summer when the beer ran out, they were brewing top fermented beer, which was called winter beer for a short period uh -huh. of time. And that was very much a Bavarian thing. I found an old book from um, uh, from Baden-Württemberg, which is uh, over Stuttgart area where Mercedes-Benz, for instance, comes from. And in that, they're writing about Bavarian brewers and they say, if you're a brewer in Bavaria, 
you're not brewing all year round like here in Baden-Württemberg. You only brew in the wintertime. And in the summertime, you have to uh, uh, do all kinds of other works in the brewery, like uh, uh, paint the walls and stuff like that. So you learn all kinds of things besides brewing. So this must have been a particular thing in Bavaria. And if you uh, think of the Nockerberg event in Munich, um, the big uh, uh, Bock beer tapping they do from the yeah. Polana brewery, um, yeah. uh, in, I think in March it is usually, they also have rock cellars there. So I think wherever there's rock cellars, there's uh, bottom fermenting beer, at least for the last five 500 years. And that's why these rock cellars are so, so important for the brewing history. And um, as you said, they were dug out manually. Um, I, I don't know whether there was some natural rock to start with and then they a natural cave to start with and then they expanded from there mm -hmm. uh, i don't have any records on that but there's a lot of records from the 17th and 1800s when all these rock cellars were extended and enlarged and basically the stefansberg the mount stefan here in bamberg yeah which is now inside the city and has a lot of houses and stuff and yeah. so forth it's it's like a, a maze underneath and uh, wow. it's got it's gotten to a point um, early last century where uh, there actually was a ban to uh, further enlarge the rock cellars because they had sta um, stability problems on, yeah. on top. Yeah, because they were the foundations. Various... The foundations were going to crumble or whatever. Exactly. Um, I, I think in the 1960s or so, a car broke in the street into one of the rock cellars. Oh my so god. Then, <laughs> so then they, they then they started uh, because by the time the Schlenkel cellar was the last one to be used, and all the other ones were were uh, were empty. Um, so they started lining those other ones with concrete on the inside in order to yeah. stabilize them. Uh -huh. So nowadays the Schlenkeler rock cellars are really the last ones which are in the original state, and they still have beer down there. So um, again, an amazing, amazing thing, and um, the 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 other thing which I find very intriguing, and um, I think some more research should be done along that way. Um, as as uh, all the listeners probably know, there's a lot of uh, debate on where the original lager yeast comes from. And there's these ideas that it's out of Georgia or maybe grew in the mountains or something. But when you look at these at this really long lager beer history here in Franconia and also in Bohemia, Franconia and Bohemia are one cultural circle. And if it wouldn't have been for World War II and communism, um, there would have never been much separation between the two. The beers are similar. The food is similar. Housing is similar. Um, from here to Prague, it's much shorter than from here to, say, Hamburg or Berlin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that it's it's one cultural background. <clears throat> and I think if we were to research more, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that the historic lager yeast comes from somewhere here in the area because um, all over the planet the optimal temperature for lager beer fermentation is seven to eight degrees Celsius. And that's the natural temperature in the rock cellars here. That can't be a coincidence. That's yeah. that there must be a connection over breeding over, over centuries and so forth. Because as you know, <clears throat> um, in the old days, brewers would harvest the yeast from a previous batch and add it to the next batch. And when you do that continuously over time in those historic rock cellars, um, you you basically 
have a, a, a breeding program for, yeah. for bottom fermenting yeast at eight degrees Celsius. Natural selection. Yeah. Um, I have I have a brewing uh, protocol book from my great great grandfather from Konrad Kraser. Um, he was before he took over Schlenkerla and Heller. Like he he wasn't born into here. He took it over. Uh, he was the patron at the oldest brewery of Bamberg, the Saint Michaelsberg Brewery. Um, Saint Michaelsberg Monastery was founded uh, in the 11th century. And they had a brewery from the start. So it's the same range as the Weinstefaner Brewery, who always claims to be the oldest brewery in the world. Um, though the document that proves that is a forgery from the 16th century. So that's known. So always be <laughs> careful with dates on, on labels. That's yeah. just a, a, a tip I give you. <laughs> okay. So um, St. Michael's Beck Brewery dates back to 11th century. And my uh, my great-great-grandfather was running it as a patron because at the time the monastery was closed and the brewery was basically leased out to uh, uh, commercial brewers. And he had uh, run it from 1840 to 1865. And um, when my grandmother died a couple of years ago, age uh, 104, beer conserves, so uh, beer is a natural preservative. Um, <laughs> I found uh, like a treasure, treasure chest from her with all kinds of documents on old brewing and stuff. And there was this brewing protocol book from, from Conrad in there. And what he did was he started in 1840 and wrote down every batch of beer he made until 1855, wow. 1854, sorry. So it's a couple of hundreds of beer recipes, if you will. Um, he has water amount in there, barley amount, what hops <clears throat> did he use? How did the fermentation go? At what temperature did he ferment? It was all bottom fermented beer. Yeah. And um, also yeah, fer what, fermented at eight degrees Celsius in the in the cellars. Or, or no, I mean, no, no, because okay. at the time oh, the Celsius there was no scale. No, the cellar was oh, there. Yet yeah. uh, the 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 Saint Michael Berg also has cellars. Oh. But at the time, the Celsius scale didn't no exist. No Celsius. Yes. At the time, the uh, scale was Riomir, and yeah. in Riomir, zero degrees freezing, like in Celsius, mm -hmm. but eighty degrees is boiling. Okay. So it's scaled down <laughs> a bit. So he was lagering, fermenting at six degrees Riomir, okay. which Cold. translate to eight degrees Celsius, same, yeah. same temperature. And cool. he he often writes about giving base to a beer. So I don't know how to say that in English. In German, it's uh, in, in in the old German they called it "Ich gab Grund," I gave mm. base or I gave reason to a beer. And mm. in in the brewer's term, that was that meant give yeast to start the fermentation. Ah, uh, yeah. And he always says with what batch of beer he gave base. So this was yeah. a. Con a continuous process. He wow. took the leftover yeast, whatever had settled at the base of um, uh, of the previous barrels, and he restarted the fermentation like yeah. that. And keep in mind that in the summertime they were not brewing, so in, yes. in September they had it had to start with one of the batches which were brewed at most in March. Wow. Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah. So that's a uh, still like the, you know, months in between harvesting right. or, or back pitching or whatever. Right. Um, so what, I mean, I'm sure there was flavor descriptors in there, like the notes on batches, if they went well or whatnot. And when, when were the best batches and what, what, what was, what was said about them? Well, the, the flavor notes are uh, not as extensive as, as I would like them. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. 
and he basically concentrates on the batches that didn't ferment too well yeah. and sometimes he says it's a good fermentation and i can't really make out um, a system to when a batch went well or not i think it has a lot to do with hygiene which of course was a big problem at the time because you did not have the micro uh, bacteria background i mean pasteur came later yeah and of course no stainless steel all wooden uh, yeah. barrels and so forth and and uh, wouldn't um wooden mashing tons yeah so the normal system was that you had a wooden mashing box not a ton actually a ma yeah. wooden mashing box and then you had a copper brewing kettle with which you were brewing continuously like they they laudered a couple of times and had th uh, two or three different batches from the lauderings, which they then blended to various beers. And I think they often had a problem with infection and uh, yeah. had to sell, uh, use the beer quickly. And so the beers for the summertime were always brewed a little bit stronger. Ah, interesting. And in, in, in order to bring the alcohol to a higher level. Yeah. And also the hops amount were much uh, much greater than we would use them today. Wow. So I, I think that was also part of the stabilization because hops, of course, is a bacteriostatic, bacteriostatic uh, element in beer. And um, but he doesn't have and that's the real interesting thing. He doesn't have a style description. He doesn't say like, OK, today we're brewing a lager or tomorrow we're brewing a red beer and so forth. That's totally not mentioned in there. And he doesn't say anything about malt. He says he used so and so much malt, yes, but it's not like brewers would work today where they have a blend of, of certain malts, like yeah. a Pilsner malt, a red malt, a sour malt, or what yeah. all there is. So back then, a brewer would make one type of malt, yeah, and then the flavor variances came out of the hops. That really was was the idea, um, mm -hmm. at least to those to those brewing records I saw. Yeah, and um, so I think. It, Brewing has come a long way since then, in the last, uh, well, 200 years, that is. Yeah. And what I also found is, uh, and I needed some other books in order to confirm that, because some of the things were a little bit odd about those recipes. For instance, um, technically, they were all Bach beers. He used a lot of malt compared to the water. And I have I have to explain that. Um, nowadays, you work with liters, with kilograms, or in the United States with gallons and and uh, what also kilograms or what barrels, pounds, 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 pounds. Yeah. exactly. But it's it's defined measurements. In those old recipes, that's totally different. Um, malt was measured in volume rather than weight, and the uh, volume unit back then was Scheffelen Metzen. So the first thing you have to do is to translate that into modern measures, which is difficult because the, the measures weren't the same in every city. So you have to look where it is, uh, how it was in Bamberg. Then beer was measured in buckets. That was the size. <laughs> but again, the bucket of Bamberg was a different size than the bucket of Munich, for yeah. instance. And so it goes on and goes on. And uh, I actually needed a historian to help me with that. And it took us like a year to figure out what was going on in these recipes. And in the end, we 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 found out that it's technically Bach beers. And I was like, well, what was going on? Why would they brewing Bach beers all the time? And it, together with other books, I found out that, in fact, Bamberg Brewers had two products. One was beer 
and the other one was called Heinzlein, which was like a um, uh, a second runnings, mm -hmm. and it was a children's beer. That's why they call it Heinzlein, which means little Heinz. Yeah, so they oh. gave it to the children, but also for the working people, for the hardworking people, and this had less than one percent alcohol, and second runnings from the lotterings. And when you add that into the overall consumption, it makes sense. So basically, they had one batch of malt. And they mm -hmm. turned it into a little bit more stronger beer, which Bamberg was actually famous for, of having stronger beer than other cities. And the second runnings was the Heinzlein, which was the during the day beer. So you had your, yeah. today I would call this the office beer during the yeah. day. And then yeah. the evening you had the fun beer together with your friends. Yeah. And and the Heinzlein was probably a nourishing beer too. Like, uh, no, you know. no, it, no, 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 it was oh. not. It, it, it was, um, I actually restarted the Heinzlein four years or three years yeah. ago. During Corona, we were bored, so we said, yeah. hey, let's do something else. And the Heinzlein is now available here in Bamberg in bottles and stuff, and we also serve it in our tavern. And it's 0.9 alcohol, and um, it's only 10 calories to the 100 milliliters. So it's, it's about a third or half of the uh, calories that um, light beers have or alcohol-free beers have. Is it still a second runnings beer? Yep. Yeah, yeah, it, that's it definitely cool. is. And it's not only second runnings. They did something else with there, which um, I kind of like to keep as a secret for myself so that okay. we're not being copied that much. <laughs> okay, cool. Now, they had wow. a unique new thing about it. And um, compared with the really low original gravity, we're talking three point something original gravity. Yeah. It uh, has a really rich beer flavor to it because of this thing they did back then. And um, so it's really a thirst squencher uh, during the day or after sports and that. And after that, you go for the regular beer. Um, but it's it's uh, it's the alternative to water because uh, in the 19th century, there was no water purification. Water yeah. was potentially polluted. So people would drink beer during the day, but obviously you cannot drink a regular beer, uh, especially not in Bamberg where the alcohol was higher. So you yeah. would drink Heinzlein. <laughs> Um, yeah. how has that been marketed? Like, has, has that been popular for you? I know people, at least in the United States are starting to drink more NA beer, more low alcohol beer. Has, has that been like, a, a good success so far in the short amount of time you've been brewing at the Heinzlein beers? It's, it's a local thing here in Bamberg. It runs gotcha. really well. We're in, in basically every supermarket and a lot of people actually buy it in the tavern. We do, I don't know. 100 cases a month or so so it's uh it's it's really okay um outside bamberg it's difficult because you need to tell that story because in germany all those uh beers in that range are actually non-alcoholic beers yeah so i think we're pretty much the only low alcohol beer in all of germany yeah um and uh it's i don't know about the states in germany the limit for for no alcohol is 0 0.5 i think it's the same yeah. So no alcohol is does not mean it doesn't have alcohol. Yeah. It only means it's yeah. below a certain rate. Yeah. And because it's zero point nine and not zero point five, it doesn't get that big range because a lot of people instantaneously say, Oh, this has alcohol. No, I rather want alcohol free. Not yeah. realizing that they get zero point five instead of zero point nine, which both means low alcohol. So yeah. it's it's a wrong law definition in my point of view. Alcohol free should be zero point zero. And yeah. everything else should be low alcohol. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's the uh, way they did it. I mean, I guess the com this conversation on the Heinz line just jarred my memory. One of the times I came by the Schlenkerla Tavern, 
you had a seasonal beer on. You had the smoke beer and then the uh, Kreuzen beer. Um, the summer beer. Uh, yeah, and I don't. I I. It seemed to stand alone. Um, like it wasn't like any of the other Schlankerla beers, and I didn't. I didn't really know how to describe it. Um, is that brewed differently, or or what's the? Is that the beer that you brewed to Kreuzen all of your other batches with? Like what's um. What's is there a historical context for that? Um, Schlenkel, there's always a historical context. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and the great thing about Schlenkel history or about beer history, it's not dry. <laughs> it's really yeah. a yeah. thirst quencher. Now the uh, Kreuzen um, in German or in the in in German brewers term, the Kreuzen are the foam bubbles in the main fermentation. Yeah. I guess most people know that. Yeah. And, um. Think think back about what I was saying early on. Um, people here would brew, or brewers here would brew in the winter time and lager the beer all throughout summer. But obviously, the wooden barrels did not have a pressure fermentation over time. So, beers would get more stale over time. And in the summertime, in the end, they were pretty low carbonated, um, which is also known as Keller beer, cellar beer mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. area. Um, but if you wanted to have a, a vivid beer in the summertime with a lot of carbonation, you had to recarbonate the beer. Nowadays, of course, you can do that artificially with uh, CO2, which you pump into, into the vessel. But historically, that technology was not available. So what brewers would, put, uh, would do back then was brew a new batch and add a little bit of young beer to the already lagered beer to get the fermentation going again to recarbonate the beer. And in German brewer's term, this is called Aufkreuzen, to bubble it up, to foam it up. And that's the literal translation. And a beer which was treated like this could be called and was called the Kreuzen beer. So um, that's the historic background story to it. The marketing story, which of course always <laughs> plays a certain role, was... Yes, in the summertime, a lot of people at our tavern said, well, the Märzen from the wooden barrel is great, but 5.1% alcohol, a dark beer, and 35 degrees don't, don't go all that well hand in hand. So we wanted to have an addition to that for the summertime rather than having everybody drink a water. Um, you know, a water has been taken the chance of becoming a beer. Yeah. yeah so that's a little <laughs> bit frustrating for a brewer to sell in a tavern. So um, I, I thought of this historic uh, historic Kreuzen technique and said, um, let's take our traditional lager beer, which is only very slightly smoky. Remember the one that Michael Grasso introduced 100 yes. years ago? And we Kreuzen it up with a classic smoke beer. So we increase... Gotcha. We increase the smokiness and a little bit the color, but the alcohol stays pretty much the same because we only have like 10% or so of, of the Märzen, which we need to cross it up. Mm -hmm. So we end up with a pale amber, rather yeah. amber lager at about 4.5% alcohol, unfiltered that is, um, uh, richly carbonated, which is a perfect addition for the summertime. And I think cool. we started that in 2013 or 14. And the Heinzlein actually came after that. So uh, the Heinzlein is a little bit of a competition for that now in the summertime. Uh, yeah, because yeah. obviously uh, at 35 degrees, 4.5% beer, that's okay. But 0 0.9, hey, that's that's the beater. Yeah? Yeah. So during the day, you see a lot of people drinking Heinzlein. And in the evening, they switch over to, to Kreuzen. Gotcha. Um... This, th this was actually... An, 
if if you allow me this the small yes. anecdote, I mean, Schlenkela has a lot of regular customers, people that come in every day, and um, a few or quite a few of them are are of the older semester because they've come to Schlenkela for like decades, yeah. And um, the most, um, how to say that. Uh, renowned Stammtisch, that's a German word, the table of regulars, is when you yeah. come into the tavern, you turn uh, to the left, to the first yeah. room, and you have this beautiful green tile often in there, yeah. and the table right next to it. So, uh, And that's the when, smallest room too, right? It's like That's a, the smallest room yes. too. And, and when you're allowed to sit on that Stammtisch, then you made it, then you achieved everything you need uh, to achieve in life. Yeah, <laughs> okay, well... There, they that's, are why a little I, bit that's, that, that's why I got some weird looks when I sat down there. No. <laughs> uh, you, you might be lucky at certain times of the day when they're not there yet, but usually they're very protective of their seats. Okay. And they have their own mugs and stuff. And they always drink classic Schlenkler. Whatever new style I introduced, they drink one and then they return to classic. So they're really a kind of boring in a way, but they're so drank into their uh, traditional uh, Schlenkela from the wooden barrel, of course. It's it's yeah. really hard to move them. But this summer was like the first time I've noticed that a large portion of those regular customers would drink the Kreuzen. So really? we're here from the brewers. We're kind of wondering, maybe they've gotten too old now or maybe they finally <laughs> discovered that the Kreuzen is a good beer after all. Yeah. And uh, so it was a really interesting move to see there. And um, yeah. Wow. I, even I mean, those people can change. <laughs> yeah. And even though, I mean, I'm sure those people sometimes, you know, the Meritzen isn't the same every time and every barrel might be different. So like, you know, talking to those customers is always kind of cool if they're like, oh, it's a good, it's good today. Or I feel like as a brewer, you know, that's always a cool bit of information. The regulars who drink the same thing every time. Um, they, they even have a diff, uh, an, an even more differentiated view at it. Uh, the, the mere reason why they chose that table to sit there is in order to have um, a direct view to the wooden barrel. And they will only order ah. when the barrel is freshly tapped. Interesting. And I mean, and I mean, the wooden barrels at Schlenkel, they're, they're gone in like an hour. So yeah. this beer doesn't get old. It doesn't get stale. It doesn't get warm. Nothing. It's wow. just that the, um, we were talking 50 liter barrels here, yeah. that the liquid pressure, of course, diminishes <laughs> over the time while you're pouring. So mm -hmm. at the beginning, it's a little bit more carbonated and the end a little bit less just by the pressure of the barrel and how yeah. it is. Yeah. So, and every barrel is, of course, a little bit differently. Yeah. And so the regulars, they swear on just the first beers from the barrel and then they wait till the next barrel come up. Yeah. And some of them also claim they can taste what barrel it comes from. I think yeah. that's an exaggeration, but yeah. I'm not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm maybe the brewers at Schlankerla or yourself could, you know, like I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of barrels, but uh Yeah, you, it's like two to three hundred, something like that. Yeah. Huh. You I'm sure you have a, a favorite barrel in there, or uh, or this is one of the good ones, no. <laughs> um I have it from a pouring point of view because you know ah. some some of these barrels are real sorry to say that, real bitches. Yes. And you know you have to be careful with the handle and so forth. And you know that by the numbers and by the fame, uh, for uh, shape of it, so every barrel really is different. The smaller ones are all easygoing, yeah. 
but the big ones can be eh, tricky. And it also yeah. depends when they were shipped down from the brewery, how long they've been sitting yes. in the storage in the tavern, which yes. at most is like a week or so, but still yeah. one or two days make a difference. Yeah. yeah. And and they sit at eight, eight degrees. Do you have like a cooler of eight degrees yeah. or yeah. Six, cool. Um it's actually at six degrees. Okay. Uh in order to give one degree buffer for the yeah. serving. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I think we're halfway through. I think this is a good and I know I've been we've been holding out for the listeners. We're gonna get to the true soul of Schlankerla in the second half, and that's the smoked malt and the essence of the smoked beer. And uh, so we're going to take a short break now for this message and then come right back for more of this conversation with Matthias Trum of Schlankerla. Malt Europe Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit malteuropemaltingco.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at malteurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. First Tea has ginger for the gingerbread stout. Or try a porter or brown ale with ginger, vanilla, and cinnamon. Looking for other seasonal ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Welcome back to our conversation with Matthias Trum of Schlenkerla. Um, so I know we we hit on some some family stuff and some some historical stuff uh, at the first in the first half, but now I'd like to kind of talk a little bit more about the nitty gritty of smoked malt and Schlankerla malt. And uh, I know it's probably a basic for you, but do, can you give us a, a tiny little walkthrough of the malting, your malting process at Schlankerla from uh, harvest day uh, at the at the farm to you brewing to brew day? Because I, yeah, it's still kind of a mystery for me because it's a very traditional uh, idiosyncratic method, you know? Um, I'm a little bit reluctant to go too nah. much into detail gotcha. uh, because there's a lot of family history behind it. And there's a lot of people out there who are trying to copy us. Um, okay. So we're a little bit careful, but we can, of course, uh, talk about all the principles. Yes. So um, we don't. Uh, grow the barley ourselves like we don't run yeah. a farm or something and uh, in fact we don't even have direct contracts uh, with farmers simply um, because we think it's too risky to go to just one farmer and especially now with climate change yeah uh, the Bamberg area Franconia has become more and more dry over the last of the last decade or so mm -hmm. um, so for instance 
this year, the barley harvest is 75% less that of normal years. So basically, when you have a contract with only one farmer, you run the risk of not getting any barley at all, at least not decent quality of that. So yeah. um, already my father uh, made the decision to go to um, uh, contract dealers of barley. So we have defined qualities which we want to have with the barley, like uh, germination energy, um, uh, protein content, water content, and so forth. And um, <clears throat> uh, um, we get that from, they call it Landhandel here, the Baiva. Uh, so there's a, an, an intermediate trade organization which gets the barley from the farmers and then uh, passes it on to us. Um, we, in fact, do that through one of the malting companies here in town, uh, the Bamberg Malting Company. They do uh, they do that for us. And also another malting company up in Kulmbach, simply mm -hmm. because these big companies have a much better access to the barley market and ensure that we get a, a good quality. And uh, then the, um, the steeping. It's pretty standard, as, as you know it in all the other maltings. And the germination boxes, uh, we're actually getting uh, renovated at the moment, or we're getting new ones. Wow. Um, this is going to be a very interesting thing. So they, uh, they're uh, planned to get in operation uh, next year, January, so roughly in a month. Mm -hmm. And we actually moved those germination boxes to our historic rock cellars because... Wow in in like for uh, until now we were like in another room which was insulated and cooled and were standard germination boxes as you know them from from normal malt houses only much smaller uh, four tons to the batch in our case whereas in the big malt houses you have 400 500 tons something like that but normal ventilation system but now um the ones in the rock cellars they're going to be much larger in surface and historically, and I found this again in the old records of my ancestors, historically, they would do floor malting in the rock cellars. And at 8 degrees Celsius, of course, you had an optimal temperature down there, and you had a very good control of the germination process, and it would not run wild because the, uh, the barley gets too warm. So what we actually did was um, we're getting specialized uh, constructed germination boxes for us, um, which have a very large surface and we have a very thin uh, layer of barley. So normally in a modern malt house, you're meter 50, two meters in, in, in height, and you need a lot of ventilation in order to make sure that the grain does not suffocate inside. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to work um, with layers of 30 to 40 centimeters, which is very close to floor malting. Yeah. Um, but we're going to have automated turning system because obviously nowadays you don't find staff anymore that shuffles uh, four or five tons twice a day. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be um, the historic floor malting process uh, twitched by a modern technology. That really is the idea behind it to get even more historic in the malting process. Um, so that's the germination part. Apart from that, it's a standard germination about one week. And um, we look at all these quality uh, items similar to regular maltings, like the protein contents and how long the seedling should be. And that, of course, you have a very homogenic malt. So that's yeah. all kind of the same thing. We're trying to get old barley types, not cool. the 
the really modern ones, which yeah. are uh, aimed at maximum efficiency yeah. and maximum output. Um, of course, you don't get historic Bali from 200 years ago. That doesn't work anymore. Yeah. But there's some historic styles you can use, which um, are also used by some other breweries in, in Germany, because obviously we're too small to have one producer just for yeah. us. So that's that's the part of, of the malting. And then, of course, comes the kilning, which is what Schlenkele really is about. And um, we still have an open fire kiln. Um, uh, well, for I don't know how many centuries in a long time. Um, so uh, you have uh, the, um, I'm, I'm actually lacking the English words, the horde, yeah, where, where you put the green malt on. And underneath, there's a, uh, a fireplace, mm -hmm. um, like you know from your home uh, fireplace in, in, in your house. Yeah. And then we put long uh, beechwood logs inside, about one meter length. Mm -hmm. uh, so beechwood is the standard wood with, uh, with which we dry um, our malt. Mm -hmm. And the heat from that fire, and as a side effect, the smoke, they go into the malt and they dry the malt. Um, uh yeah in in the normal way as 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 you do it like the 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 yeah. um the temperature effect like it's the same as effect as you have in a normal malting so at first the moisture is driven out for for a couple of hours until you have the breakthrough and then the temperature rises up yeah and um that's what we do and we just have the uh the different fuel source if you will yeah and the regular Schlenkele malt is killed at relatively high temperature. Mm. So we go above 100 degrees Celsius. So it's not like wow. a Pilsner malt. Yeah. Um, so we really go high up in, uh, with the temperature. So the, the dark color of Schlenkele also comes from uh, uh, that kilning process. Yeah. I've, I've always thought it was interesting that like, you know, you can quantify moisture or, or whatever, but you can't quantify smoke character right no so. <laughs> it does work it in, in fact i mean th that's the thing that changed in the last 50 60 years originally of course um you would dry the malt and you dried it until a certain point when uh the moisture was there there was something they called the boot test ah. so you would walk into the kiln and <clears throat> depending on how far you sink in with your boots you know how far the malting process was gone Whoa. yeah because of, of course back then you did not have a moisture measurement or something like that yeah and um, uh, today, of course, that runs uh, over over a time scale, and you know how long it's going to take, yeah. and and stuff like that. But nowadays, you can of course measure the smokiness inside the malt, which is uh, phenols. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Water fluent phenols, and it actually turned out that the phenols are quite different between batches, just because it's this manual process, and yeah. you, you cannot adjusted to a certain point of view it depends yeah. on how uh, cold it is outside what moisture you have in the air outside the the wood yeah even yeah. within the same batch of wood it might be differently whether you have more outer pieces of the tree or more inner pieces so there's a certain variance in there and um what my ancestors started at one point was to basically blend malts between batches in order to level ah. that out and in order to make sure that you have a constant flavor in the beer. Ah. Yeah. So that really is is the one thing. I mean, that's no secret. Most brewers do that yeah. when they have a regular uh, beer, which is like their main beer. <clears throat> yeah. So we have that blending in there. Um, on the other hand, in my time, I have introduced a few new 
smoke beers and smoke malts for that yes. matter. So we started in 2009 with the oak smoke, yeah. um, the malt, which is kilned with an oak fire. Um, I found in old records that oak was often used um, for, for kilning malt, especially in England. Apparently yeah. in England, it was common until the 15th, 16th century. Yeah. And we just made a trial run and looked and wanted to see what, what what's going to happen flavor-wise. And my expectation before the first trial run was that the smoke would be more intense because you think of oak as this really sturdy, strong, hard type of tree, wood, long-lasting tree, and you think, oh, intense smoke and... Um, so I expected this uh, to be a more intense beer. Uh, when we had the malt, we then realized it's much smoother in the smokiness than the beach. So the beach is actually the intenser version. Yeah. So then the question was what to do with this um, really mellow and smooth smoke smoke malt. And mm. um, my idea, and that's what we did in the end, was to turn it into a double bog where you have that rich malt flavor to accompany the smokiness. And so the uh, Schlenkerler Oak Smoke was born, which we now have for like 14 years. Yeah. And uh, this year we added two more beers. Yes, I, I, I was going to ask you about this. A very okay. new, new, exciting beers, right? Yeah. With new, with new, with new smoke malts. With new smoke. Yeah. So uh, this is a creative for you, but still throwing it back to tradition. Um, yeah, tell us about the two new beers and your experience kind of brewing these for the first time and your reactions and all that. Well, I, I know that in the United States, a lot of home brewers and also small brewers experiment with different types of wood, like they flavor yeah. the malt in their home smokers and stuff like that. So um, I didn't want to copy any of this. So My, my yeah. idea really was to at first look what was historically done. And uh, one of the beers we introduced is a black beer with an elder smoked or elder killed malt. Cool. And elder is, in fact, mentioned in the book of the 1800s, where it says that elder is very fav favorable for the maltster because it burns for a long time. So you don't have to get off, uh, get up as often at night in order to refire <laughs> your kiln and you keep it uh, longer running. So this was apparently a favorite uh, malt, uh, favorite wood for malt making. And cool. I just, a couple of weeks ago, I talked to someone from Finland and he said, yeah, in Finland, elderwood is the tree they use for firing um, their saunas. Uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah. Same thing up there. So up yeah. there you smoke people and here you smoke yeah. malt. So and you don't have to, and you don't have to get up too much. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's the, I, I think uh, a tree like beach is not very often available in, in, uh, uh, um, in, uh, in Finland from all yeah. the climate situation, whereas yeah. they have a lot of older, obviously yeah. people would use whatever wood they had locally available. Yes. And the thing with the, uh, with the Weichsel, that's the other beer we introduced this okay. year. Um, it's a red lager. And Weichsel is the German word for cherry tree. Cool. So this one is made with a, a cherry wood smoke malt. And for that, it did not have a historic precedence. I admit mm. that. But I just wanted to explore what's going to happen flavor-wise when we use a fruit tree. And uh, it actually turns out that it has a certain fruity aroma to it, not like a cherry, of course. Yeah. But uh, you get a hint of fruitiness into that beer, which really goes nicely with the red lager. And the red lager, of course, a historic beer style here of Franconia and in particular yeah. of Nuremberg. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah so and then the alder like what are what are your what were your your, your reactions to the alder black beer like um what did you notice about i haven't had it yet so <laughs> okay so we yeah. have to get you some definitely yes. <laughs> I'm, i'm thirsty talking about all the smoke beer <laughs> well oh yeah his importer has it i have to talk to him that he gets yeah. you uh, a couple of oh, bottles over nice. um the 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 elder is basically the the little brother of the classic Merzen smoke beer. Mm -hmm. So the elder has a, a relatively, well, of course, a very dark color, black beer. We have roast malt in there, so you have a lot of roast aromas and a very smooth but also intense uh, smoky aroma and flavor, but not as harsh as in the classic Merzen. So it's a little more, middle, um, a little bit smoother. On that and and it really nice balances with the roast aromas from from the roast malt mm. and the Weichsel on the other hand the red lager that's like as in German we call it a and uh, a ganz andere Baustelle a totally different construction site um, it's um, it, it's not comparable in flavor to the classic Merzen smoke beer it's much less smoky even though we have like 80% Weichsel smoke malt in there mm. um, but it's really subtle on the smokiness and it's more comes from the fruity side and has more fruity aromas cool. and that mellowness which you know from from red lagers so I think for all the people for whom the classic Schlenkler is too intense and too much, the Weichsel yeah. is a really, really good alternative. Cool. And and the black lager is for Schlenkler lovers. It's really yeah, nice. a Schlenkler treat. Nice. That sounds right up my alley. Um, I wanted to maybe touch on some like brewing QC. Obviously, uh, you know, your, your malt is very special and, uh, you're brewing potentially a more vintage way compared to a lot of other uh, modern Bavarian or breweries. Um, yeah. How, how has like your fermentations and your QC kind of like uh, remain the same over the past couple hundred years and how has it changed? How it has it modernized? I'm sure it has a little bit, but uh, yeah. Can you speak to your, QC um, quality control process. I, I was going to ask, but I figured yes. it was quality yes. control. Yeah, yeah. Um, that of course changed a lot. Um, I mean, you have so much more uh, possibilities these days in in order to do quality control. It starts with the raw material, which is supplied with an analysis sheet, so you know where you start from. Um, we in fact have a small laboratory at our brewery. I mean, we're we're uh, roughly a 20,000 hectoliter, meaning 20,000 barrel brewery, and we mm -hmm. have our own laboratory. Which, at least here in Germany, I don't know about the United States, but in Germany, that's quite uncommon. Usually, uh, breweries are much bigger until they have a laboratory. But yeah. quality is very important to us, and um, so uh, um, we have our own yeast propagation unit. Um, we got that or I got that uh, roughly uh, seven years ago um, because I wanted to concentrate even more there on the optimal state of the yeast when you start the fermentation because as you know, a quick fermentation in the beginning is the essence for not getting any infections into the beer and for having a, a good final flavor, of course. Um, the other thing where we invested a lot of money in, in the last uh, 15 years mm -hmm. was in the extension of our lagering facilities. 
um, we were talking about the rock sellers before, and yes. uh, in the old days, uh, there were wooden barrels down there for lagering. Yeah. And in the 1920s, uh, Michael re replaced them by um, iron, yeah. iron vessels, which was the thing at the time. My father, after World War II, he replaced them by aluminum vessels. Okay. And by the time I took over, they were, well, uh, getting close to the end of their life life cycle because they get rough on the inside because of the CO2, which of course is a breeding ground for, for bacteria. Yeah. So I made the decision to replace everything by stainless steel mm -hmm. together here with Kasper Schulz of Bamberg. Kasper Schulz, uh, oldest brewery machine factory in the world, which mm -hmm. probably most of, of the listeners know as well. And this was quite a challenge because <clears throat> um, getting those, well, modern large scale uh, vessels into the historic rock cellars through a small a, a small shaft. Um, I don't think a lot of companies could have done that. They actually did a CAD <laughs> model on the computer and simulated how they would bring those vessels yeah. into there. Wow. So they came in there in one piece rather than being uh, welded on spot. Yeah. Wow. Which which I wanted because when you weld on spot, your welding is not going to be as smooth, which again is a, might be a problem with infection mm -hmm. and so forth. Yes. So uh, to make a long story short, uh, we now have um, capacity for 100 batches in our rock cellars. And um, we have wow. a maturation time for all the classic Schlenkeler of two to three months. And yeah. all the Bach beers get half a year of maturation. Wow. That's and so that, cool. And that by itself pushes quality um, a certain point upwards. And um, for instance, the Bach beers we don't need to filter them anymore because they clean by themselves. And that by itself uh, gets a huge aroma boost. And um, <clears throat> at least the draft ones. Yeah. Um, with the bottled ones, it's sometimes a bit different because you have to be sturdy on that one. But um, so uh, I was talking early on, profit maximization is not a thing for us. So we invested a lot of money in, into that quality into there. It's gotten to a point where when we got the last, um, how's, how's that, that IRS exam, when like the tax officials control your books and everything, yeah, they were saying um, that we're over-invested compared to what we're producing, what we're doing. And I explained to the assessor, how we see quality and what we do in there and everything. And then he kind of said, okay, he's willing to accept that. And uh, he's not assuming anything else, which of course there's not. And um, so even on a, on a, on a balance scorecard level, this shows what, what we're, what we're doing on that end. And my tax attorney always says we're crazy what we're doing, but I just like it that way. Yeah. And um Compared so to other brewery. compared to other breweries. <laughs> uh compared to other businesses, yeah, yes. I but gotcha. but but there again comes the family uh into play. And my father supports me on that, and he doesn't pull money out of the business in like you know, driving expensive cars or having uh, a house on, on, on Mallorca or something like that, which maybe in other companies people do. So we always stay invested and in, and in, in keep it on that maximum level. And of course, when you run um, a place that is uh, stock owned or you have uh, 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 shareholders, which you have to pay a certain rate, then you cannot do that. But within the family, when you all pull in the same direction, when you stay together and we say, hey, we do it that way. And this is not only our business, this is our hobby. 
Yeah. yeah. And uh, every day you go to the tavern, every day, every day you go to the brewery, you enjoy those tanks in the rock cellars. That's yeah. a value by itself. And so that's kind of the way we did it. So I have my Porsche down there, so to say, yeah. And, yeah. and, it, yeah, and you... it's filled with beer. Yeah. And, uh, um, yeah, that it's, it's really my hobby and, 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 and I live it and my, my wife kind of complains that I don't have any other hobbies, but uh, okay, that's one thing she has to live with. Yeah, um, we're sitting here on a on on a Sunday talking about this, so I think yeah. even that shows it. And totally. um, so that that's where we come from a quality point of view. And I, I hired a, a brewmaster for for the laboratory, so we mm -hmm. put uh, a lot of effort in that one as well. And um, whenever we do new beers, we do a lot of experimentation until we get the final taste. Um, if quality is not what we wanted, we throw it out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, we, we don't do trial batches in on small scale. We always start with a large scale because we want to have it 100% how it is later on in, in the actual production. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, quality is next to history, the most important thing here at Lankala. Yeah. And then, so like in your father's time, for example, the fermentations, like how, what was the yeast like and how is he handling yeast? Um, and, you know, like you were theoretically drinking those beers when you were a late teenager. Um, early teenager. Early teenager. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You're talking, you're talking Germany. It's a little bit yes. more easy going here than in the States. Yes, I believe that. Um, like how has the... Like what was the yeast? Yeah, I'm just curious about like the evolution in the past one or two hundred years about like yeast handling and and flavor and then like making investments and saying like wow like all right yeah like um I know you said you made the the you know bought the propagator and you have a cute um a lab a lab guy now but um yeah like what how how what was that evolved from um. I think back then at my father's time, the yeast management was not that important. And from a flavor point of view, uh, I still think that yeast management in the smoke beer is not as important as, say, in the lager or pilsner. Yeah. Because the smoke is such a dominant uh, smoke flavor. And there is no Schlenkele yeast. We, we never went to a way where we said we want to have our own yeast type other than um, I was working, for instance, at the Urge Brewery in in, uh, uh, in Düsseldorf, oh. Altbier, and they have their Urge yeast, which everything revolves around. And yeah. I know other breweries do the same thing. Um, I think, uh, uh, was it Bex Brewery that even sent yeast to space to kind of... Oh, I don't know. So stuff like that. Um, it never played that important a role here at Schleinkala. In fact, we get the yeast from, from befriended breweries. Yeah. And uh, we we don't always need the exact same yeast type. So when we talk about getting our own propagation and having the laboratory, it's all about optimal fermentation and not getting infection in that. But yeah. it's not about, hey, Schlenkele needs yeast number four or seven, two yeah. uh, instead of four or six, five, because that's going to change the flavor. Interesting. For that, the smoke flavor is too intense. Yes. That's, that's not necessary in that end. No. Yeah. So um, what my father did was... Um, 
he switched from the open vat fermenters to the closed fermenters. So that was uh, one of his contributions. He did a lot of contributions, but that was mm -hmm. on, on the quality level, a very important one, because obviously you decrease your risk of uh, infections enormously. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. And then in terms of barley, you mentioned before, uh, different varieties of barley trying to find some different uh some heirloom varieties or some older more maybe right. tastier yeah what 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 has that looked like uh throughout the past you know the the more recent history um because i'm sure some have gone away some have some became harder to get and like that you're having to source that and uh because the malt is kind of the the heart and soul of your beer. Um, yeah, can you any any comments on that? Well, th that's the thing why my father decided a long time ago to actually move to to a trade company in between because it gave him mm -hmm. more uh, flexibility in that respect. Because when you talk to a farmer and you tell him, "Hey, grow that barley," and he says, "I don't know how to handle that. I don't know how to yeah. fertilize it. I don't know." Yeah, and then we would have to come up with that. This is outside our expertise. This is something we do not know and. Uh, at least as long uh, as long as as I have the family records, we've never grown our own barley. Yeah. Um. Hundred years ago, we grew our own hops, actually, but um, we never grown our own our barley. So this is actually one thing we we kind of outsource. So yeah. we 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 get from our tradespeople what barley they have available, and then uh, we kind of research and we look at the values and. We also get advices on who else might use it for historic beer size and that, but we're dependent on the supplier on that one. Yeah. I, I admit that. Um, cool. And one other thing I wanted to uh, kind of plug and, and get you to extrapolate on is uh, your thesis paper for uh, your, for your studies at Vine Stefan uh, on uh, I, I read, I think most of it last night, uh, Wow. <laughs> well, well, I think, I think. That's why you look so tired <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wanted to, um, kind of see just get your get your comments on that. I'm sure there were some like aha moments during, um, so if you could tell the listeners about, uh, the crux of that, uh, thesis and then like, if any of that, if you took any of that to Schlanker law and if you had any like, Oh my God, like earth shattering moments from studying that beer history. Um, I have to say how, how the whole thing started. Um, yeah. usually when you go to Wein Stefan and you study brewing science and you do the, your diploma works, you do it on some technical aspect, like whatever, water purification and so forth. Um, that was not my line of things. And uh, I could have done that, but uh, I don't think I would have been very good at it. And we also had brewing history down there. And I very much like the professor, uh, um, Professor Moistdorfer. He died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. And he came in one day, or I told him I want to do a thesis. And he was thrilled because I was like the first one in years to uh, do a brewing uh, history thesis because, as I said, most brewers are more these technical-oriented uh, yeah. people. And so he said, yeah, he has to think about it, but there, he has a couple of topics which he liked to explore. And so he came back a couple of weeks later and he showed me a picture which I knew um, uh, that oldest depiction of a brewer uh, Beer Brew Hattel. Um, uh, it shows a brewer in a monk 
uh, uh, suit, basically. He's staring, uh, he's steering in, not staring, he's steering in uh, a kettle. Yeah. Um, obviously, with brewing beer, you have a fire yeah. underneath. And over him, hoovering or hanging on, on a stick is the brewing star. Yeah, which looks uh, which is a hexagram and looks like the star of David, like the Jewish star. And then he presents me with another picture, exactly the same, same posture, same guy, also steering, a little bit different looking, but obviously from the same painter. Only the symbol was different. It was not a brewing star, but it was rather like a like a fence. It looked a little bit like a fence. And he said. He found this other picture, and the one was a brewmaster, and the other one was a brewer, and he couldn't make no and not, couldn't make heads of ta- heads or tails of it. The brewing star we know it's a symbol of the brewer's guild, and yeah. um, it's uh, you find it very often in taverns here in the area on the antler outside. Yeah. The Schlenkler Tavern has it outside, yeah. and um, there's the Zeugel beer in Oberpfalz, which is homemade, home brewed beer, which also has that symbol on it. Yeah. But nobody ever saw that fence like structure, hmm. and he could only direct me to this must have to do something with uh, the city of Nuremberg and the um, house. Uh, 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 the the housebook of of the um, of the Mendel family, so um, I started with this riddle basically, and then then uh, started going through the archives, and um, uh, it, it took me about three months of research uh, in in various books in various archives, and in the end it turned out um, that these depictions are basically from the same house book. Um, so basically this house was like an old age home mm-hmm. for um, uh, 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 craft people that could not afford their own living anymore. Ah. And this was a donation by a rich family, a foundation. And from that donation, 12 of these craft people could always live together like the 12 apostles. Wow. And this started uh, in the 14th century, and it was only for craft people. And they had um, a house book in which all the members over the centuries were depicted and the name and the profession was underneath. And the special thing is that all these craftspeople were depicted with their tools. So this book is a unique look into the history of, of craft and what kind of tools were used for the various professions. And there's a number of brewers in there. And Bierbrew Hattel just happens to be the oldest one. Um, he was, in fact, there before the 14th century, uh, before the 15th century. But the p- depiction was made in 1425 because the book was started a couple of decades after the foundation started. And mm-hmm. that also explains why the first 20 or so members look the same because the guy who painted those paintings never saw these people. Yeah, he just had to yeah. uh, imagine what they have looked like. And the gown they were wearing was not a monk suit or uh, something like that because this was not a monastery. This was just the institution gown, which everybody of them was wearing. So... Very often when you see this picture, it says it shows the historic monks and how they were brewing beer, and that's false. So that was my first aha moment. All these publications out there, and they got it wrong, and I got it right. Yes. (laughs) So so that was the first thing. The second thing was um, that 
uh, uh, fence kind of like image. So the question was, where did that come from? I found a number of clues, but not the, uh, the final proof. Um, apparently, um, this kind of fence was used in the area of Nuremberg often to depict houses in which freshly brewed beer is being served. Um, <laughs> more on a communal level, not on a on a commercial level. And in 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 the course, I uh, built up a theory a theory which I could not finally prove. Excuse me. Um, uh, one of the patrons of brewing is the Holy Florian. Um, uh, a martyr from the Roman times, a Catholic martyr. Mm -hmm. And Florian was actually, well, as as martyrs are, he was murdered by the Romans and they grilled him to death on like a barbecue. And that's uh -huh. why he's always depicted with that kind of a grid. Uh -huh. And you find him also, uh, or he's also the patron of firefighters because he was on that grill. And so grill, yeah. fire, that's the connection. Yeah. And breweries always had the problem um, of running a big fire hazard. Yes. Not only the maltings for the smoke pot, but also the, the brewery itself. Yeah. So in a, a number of cities, you find that the, the Holy Florian um, was the patron of the brewers because firefighters, brewers, uh, it was always mm -hmm. the same. Yeah. And in that same context, you can interpret the brewing star. The brewing star back to antique times was a protective symbol being edged into um, doors and doorsteps of houses in order to uh, protect the houses from, from uh, bad, bad mishaps, from fire and stuff like that. You find it on little um, amulets, which people would carry when they would travel. Hmm. You, in fact, find it in combination with barley on, on symbols mm -hmm. to maybe protect the harvest and stuff like that. Yeah. So, both of these have this protective kind of uh, background meaning to it. And I think that's the reason why you find both in those depictions, because brewers, I mean, they were a little bit, uh, what's the English word for that? Um, um They uh, thought of demons and that could, uh, uh, yes. um, uh, not religious, but, you know, um, uh, when a black cat crosses your street, yeah. you're being wary and stuff. So I think all the people in the Middle Ages were like that to a certain extent. Yeah. So having a protective sign over your house, especially when you're making beer, um, was a very important thing. I mean, back then, people would think when beer turned sour that, you know, demons might have had an influence in it or yeah. beer witches and stuff like that. So. Yeah. Belief played a certain amount, a certain certain role in it, and I think that's part of the reason why these symbols are being used uh, or were being used. So that's uh, that's this part of the story. Yeah. Um, the second aha moment was the brewing star itself, that hexagram. You um, find this very often um, in around alchemy, so yeah. it's an alchemy symbol, and now I come back to my, my family story. I grew up uh, above the, 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 the tavern, as I told you earlier on. And when you do a city tour of Bamberg, the sightseeings, you will make a stop in front of Schlenkerle and people will, uh, the guide will tell you about Smokeby and so forth. And they always talked about the brewing star in our antler. And they always said, this is a sign of alchemy, symbolizing like two triangles overlapping each other. And the two triangles symbolize water and fire which you use in alchemy. 
And of course, you use that in making beer. Mm -hmm. So brewers, brewers are essentially alchemists turning water into beer, whereas mm -hmm. the alchemist wants to turn anything into gold. Yeah, so that was yeah. the story behind it. And I always thought this was a little bit weird in a way. I mean, alchemy was regarded, well, not to with too high esteem those were you know like all close to to witches and and uh, uh magicians yeah so these yeah. were not in regular not the big respected members of of the community beer yeah. however was nutrition yeah make brewing beer baking bread those were the core businesses of the yeah. time because essential. it was absolutely essential exactly and well, for that reason, it did not make sense that these two groups would use the same symbol. And when when you come from that protective point of view, um, that this was an amulet, you could actually say, hey, it makes sense. Brewers used it not because of alchemy, but they used it in order to have a protection for their house. And maybe even the alchemists used it in that context because they were brewing around. And only later on, somebody interpreted that yin and yang, water and fire and so forth yeah. into it. I don't think people thought like that back then in, uh, mm -hmm. in, in that way. And so uh, that was the second aha effect. Everybody yeah. out there says it's alchemy, and hey, I know it's something different. Yeah. So I've 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 uh, I've actually started to give presentations to the Bamberg tourist guides in order to educate them yeah. on that, so they can tell the real story of the brewing. Yes. Star. Awesome. And and the third aha moment, and the obvious question was, <laughs> is there any connection to the Star of David to the Jewish star? Mm -hmm. Which at first you would say no. Uh, it's two two different things. Yeah. But if you look at the history of the Star of David, there is mm, some proximity, if you want to put it that way. The Star of David originated uh, not in in the uh, uh, historic antique times with David on the shield and so forth. That's a modern interpretation. There's no actual proof of that. Mm -hmm. The historic sign of the Jewish community was the menorah, the um, the chandelier with the mm -hmm. seven seven points and the uh, um the the star of david only became um relevant mm -hmm. uh through the sionistic movement in the 19th century and then of course later on in the holocaust um but it started as a jewish symbol in the community of prague uh sometimes in the 15th 16th century um Jewish people in uh medieval europe mm -hmm. or in europe at the time were usually living in their own city quarter separated from the rest. And cities usually had city walls around them, which were had to be mounted and defended when the city was attacked. So the Jewish had their own militia and their own uh, gate in that uh, city wall normally, which they were defending. And the Jewish community of Prague had uh, the six-pointed star on their flag. And because Prague was a center of Jewish book printing, and in those books, they would use that symbol as well. These books spread out all over Europe, and it's perceived that because of that, eventually it turned into that general Jewish symbol in the Zionistic movement. Mm. And now the interesting thing, the Jews of Prague originally came from Nuremberg. And they were expelled from Nuremberg in the 14th century because they were uh, there was a program there. So 
um, there must have been Nuremberg influence uh, in on the Prague community uh, big time. And as yeah. I said earlier on, uh, Franconia and Bohemia, Nuremberg is Franconia, Bamberg yeah. is Franconia, Prague, of course, is Bohemia. Yeah, very close. This is, this is a cultural connection. Yeah. I mean, from, from the distance, it's like when you drive from New York to Washington, something like that. Yeah. So it's relatively close. Yeah. And um, so... My assumption or my my uh, speculation is that the six-pointed star was a general protective symbol, protecting your houses against fire, against demons in your beer, or any type of, you know, a good sign, um, a, a good sign for for you and your life in your house. Yeah. And in that context, the Jewish community from Nuremberg took it with them over to Prague then used it on their flag 200 years later and from there in the course of the next couple of hundred years um, over the Zionistic movement it became that Jewish symbol it is today that religious symbol so in fact it has that historic protective idea in a way and when you look at the interpretation with the Magen David with the, the shield of David David against Goliath of course that story Again, you have that protective story in there. Mm. So there is a certain proximity mm. between the meaning for the brewer and the uh, the meaning, the original meaning for the Jewish community. Man, so it seems like you you have more research to do. Uh, I yeah, at the end, I know there's more questions. Even though you you unturn yeah. a lot of info, there's always more questions. Um, yeah, it will it will be hard to prove something like that eventually. <laughs> I, I, I was con contacted a couple of years ago by a professor from the U University of Jerusalem. Yeah. And he was quite interested in that. And we did like a, a little oh, wow. presentation and stuff together. Cool. But of of course, with any religious topic, you have to be extremely careful because you're going to hurt feelings of people and stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm really kind of laid back. And yeah. Um, Four years ago, there was uh, an exhibition at the Jewish Museum of Munich, um, which revolved around Jewish involvement in the brewing industry, which in the 1900s was quite um, quite intense. Same here in mm -hmm. Bamberg, because Jewish uh, people were uh, very often active in trade mm -hmm. because they could not do craft. Yeah, they mm. were usually were uh, prohibited from doing craft, but they could do trade. And since there was Jewish communities all over uh, Europe and they all had the same language, uh, they had a certain advantage in trading. And a lot of hop trading was done by Jews. And when in the 19th century, uh, free trade came up and Jews were allowed to invest into all kinds of businesses, um, a lot of the newly found industry breweries in Germany at the late uh, 18th, uh, 19th century were in fact invested by uh, Jewish uh, families. And um, of course that was uh, revolved back during Nazi time when they were expelled and, and their yeah. shares were taken off. But a lot of big German breweries were run uh, by, by or owned by Jewish families around the 1900s. Man. Beer history. I oh, yeah. I'm in I'm into it and I know I'd love to have I'd love to visit you at Schlenkerlan and talk more and next time I'm there about and dig into some other things. But I want to wrap up the podcast with kind of where we started, the next generation for Schlenkerla. Um yeah, how many kids do you have and how old are they and like what uh 
what's their involvement what's the what's the next generation shaping up to be like well my i have two kids my son yeah. julius he's 12 and my daughter felicia she's nine so very far away yes. still from from taking responsibility and yes julius always says um he's going to take over and i can retire and have a fun time and so forth <laughs> Uh, we will see what puberty does about that. And yeah. <laughs> uh, Felicia at the moment, she wants to do something with animals. Um, I think I just have to convey to her that yeast is a, fire to a type of animal too. So maybe yes, that works in true. that respect as this well. This is true. Um, so yeah, we will see um, uh, how, how that goes. But I think there's definitely some form of interest there. And uh I'm trying to convey them the the rich family history, not too much because I don't want to bore them, of course. Yeah, and um, if you and if you force it, then they'll. No, I feel I like work. yeah, with kids, sometimes it's like you force it, and then they they pull back. No, my my yeah. my parents didn't force it on me. What uh, at uh -huh. all? They always like I'm a single child, so I was yeah. the only option they had. Yeah. Uh, but they all they always said if you want to do something else, okay, but be sure that you really like to do to do the other thing and um, yeah for, for me it never was a question to do anything else and i mean when i look at, at at my kids julius when i had my 40th birthday um julius was four year at four years at the time so he uh walked over to the wooden barrel started pouring the beer and serving serving oh, yeah. uh, the guests of the fest festival or of the party so i yeah. said hey there's my successor right there. Uh, yeah. Of course, Felicia came afterwards, so yeah. now it's an open race, but yeah. uh, he's definitely uh, into it. And as you pointed out earlier, um, being a teenager uh, from a brewery gives you certain advantage with within the class and with your friends and so forth. So it's yeah. the cool thing. It's really the yeah. cool thing. Uh, wow, that's, uh, I, I bet. Yeah, our kids, I, our kids, we'll see. But, uh, you know, our brewery has no heritage, but... Uh, I do like pride myself on being a, a family brewer and trying to keep it, uh, trying to keep it close to home. So, uh, you know, starting a family brewery, I think is much more difficult than continuing it. So you're doing a big thing here. <laughs> well, you have provided a very good inspiration and, uh, I hope to make it out to Bomberg at some point very soon. Um, you're welcome anytime and yeah. we have a beer together and chat some more yes and on that note i'd like to uh conclude the podcast thank you very much matthias for agreeing to uh chat with me today and thank um, you very much for having me and thank yeah. you for your patience i know history uh, is not always <laughs> the easiest topic i i love it i'm i'm literally uh I, it's one of the things that excites me when you when you get too bogged down in the day-to-day -day, you know oh yes the yeast the barley ferment the beer the history and connecting the dots is something that uh kind of re reinvigorates my passion i think so um thank you for for being so dedicated to that gladly done thank yes. you okay uh, Matthias will be back on the next episode of this show as the host, having a conversation with a brewer of his choosing. That will be on the air in two weeks, so make sure you tune in for that. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow on social media. To support journalism in the beer space, check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. I'm Dan Suarez of Suarez Family Brewery. Thank you for listening to the Brewer to Brewer podcast. Cheers. First Tea is a proud sponsor of the Brewer to Brewer podcast. 
Falling temps and festive seasons are fast approaching, which means now is a good time to develop holiday stouts and brown ales using hibiscus and cinnamon from First Tea. Looking for other new ideas? You can find out more about First Tea's collaborations with brewers and tea ingredients by visiting firsttea.com slash blog. That's F-I-R-S-D-T-E-A dot com slash blog. Malting Company is based in North America, specializing in growing and producing quality malts for the craft beer and distilling industries. With local farms and malt houses spread across the United States, Canada, and Mexico, Malt Europe Malting Company's commitment to excellence is fully ingrained into every batch it produces, ensuring breweries and distilleries of any size can create the finest beverages on the planet. Visit MaltEuropeMaltingCo.com to learn how Malt Europe Malting Company can support your malting needs. Contact Malt Europe Malting Company at customer success at MaltEurope.com or dial 844-546-MALT for questions or to place your order. 